We're going to begin our reading at verse 38. It is the hinge between chapters 9 and 10. If you would please stand together. It's raining outside. Scripture tells us when we see the rain, we should remember the promise that God is attached to his word. For as the rain falls from heaven and never returns to God void, but always accomplishes the purpose which it was sent, so also does God's word accomplish its purpose in our hearts. That word will never fail. Let's hear it now from Nehemiah chapter 10, beginning at 9.38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Malak, Harim, Miramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Genethon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Benjamin, Matziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui, of the sons of Hinnadad, Kadmil, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalida, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rohab, Rehab, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Parash, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Babai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Aden, Ater, Hezekiah, Atzer, Hodiah, Hashum, Bezai, Harith, Ananath, Nebai, Magpiesh, Meshulam, Hetzer, Meshabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Holahesh, Piha, Shovek, Rehum, Hashbanah, Messiah, Ahaya, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, Bena. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our fathers' houses at, appointed, at times appointed year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruits of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. 
For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, and the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let us pray. Lord, we are so weak, but you are so strong. And your word is able because your spirit is life-giving. And so we pray that the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words and has preserved your word in its integrity to this very day, that that same spirit would bless the reading and especially the preaching of your own word, that faith would be written in our hearts, and more and more we would be faithful as the people of God, not to neglect the house of our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I have to admit, it's, it's almost getting fun reading those names. Let's see if I feel that way after the next chapter. In some ways, that comment sets up what I want to say here at the, at the beginning of the sermon, an unusual way to begin, perhaps. But if I were honest, I have not been looking forward to preaching this sermon uh, really this whole week. It's a hard text. It engages a very sobering and convicting subject uh, on the subject of keeping our vows. And one of the reasons why I was not looking uh, forward to it, uh, even into this morning, I began this week, literally on Monday morning, uh, one of the first things I did when I got to my office was open up a letter uh, from another church informing us that a minister has not only left the ministry, but is even leaving his wife. And I was very, very heartbroken to hear that. And I spent part of my time yesterday with a friend who is on the very cusp of breaking vows in his life that he has maintained for a very long time. In fact, he wanted to talk together, uh, inviting me to talk him off that ledge. And uh, somehow the subject of what I was preaching on today came up and he actually said, you should mention my story. Just please don't use my name. And so here we are today talking about keeping our vows, a a very sobering subject, especially in a world full of broken vows, broken promises that often lead to broken lives. But we can be thankful that there is one who keeps his vows and is also the giver of life. So we're going to work this very long text in in three uh, somewhat succinct ways. The first point will be the quickest, the second one the longest, and the third one uh, fairly brief as well. There's a lot to cover, but let's think about the context of covenant renewal, the content of it, and finally the climax of the same. If you've been here with us, you've sensed the momentum now in the book of Nehemiah. The people of God are not only back in the land, they once again are in the presence of God, They have their Bibles out, if you will, for the first time and in a long time. And in the last chapter, what we saw was an extended version of corporate confession of sin. People of God heard the word of God and recognized in their long wanderings away, not simply as a people in exile, but even now back in the land, that uh, though the word of God was near to them, they were far from the word of God. And so they stood. 
for a long period of time, and they corporately confess their sins, and we should acknowledge that this is actually a good thing for people to do. Confession can be a good thing if understood and used properly. But it was not enough that they should simply confess their sins. That led to this chapter, covenant renewal, which is a phrase that we use for all kinds of things, including our worship service. In a certain sense, uh, what we were doing as a church, when we gather together for worship, is a version of covenant renewal. The word of God is there. In a certain sense, we're reminded not only of the promises that he has made to us, but even the promises that we have made to him. And then those promises being reflected upon are, in a manner of speaking, sealed in blood. Our worship service is a form of covenant renewal, but a different form of covenant renewal is what takes place in Nehemiah chapter 10. It begins with yet another list, 82 names, if I have it right, representing 21 priests that themselves represent 15 families. There are 17 Levites, multiple heads of households are represented, some who are described as civil powers, including Nehemiah himself, the governor, and in a certain sense, all who could understand. It's a way of saying, all Israel is here, and Israel is all in. It is the bound people of God. It is the corporate people of God. And the people of God collectively and corporately are not only making a covenant, but they do that against the backdrop of confessing their sins. The language of making an oath or a covenant uh, is literally cutting. And we'll come back to this a little bit later. But it's important to know that when it talks about uh, making an oath, making a promise, in many ways what is happening here uh, is figurative language. Uh, the covenant language is built on the idea of cutting. God himself being the originator who first cuts covenant with man. Most covenants in the Bible that are made are made by God himself. But there are occasions where we see man making covenants, not only uh, with one another, but as we see here in this chapter, man making a covenant, a promise to God. And you'll notice, it's worthwhile, uh, that God did not tell them to do this. This is something they took upon themselves. They are, in a manner of speaking, pricked to the heart. They are, in a manner of speaking, cut off at their own knees by the word of God. And now they are coming to God making promises. Promises made to God ought to be kept. But there's another sense we might say uh, that this is a, a good moment in Israel's history, because they've heard the word of God, and they are now rightly and righteously responding. That is to say, uh, this is an expression of their repentance. And when you think about repentance, it's helpful to remember that there are two sides of it. It's not simply a turning from something, but also a turning to something. Turning from sin and to righteousness. Our shorter catechism helpfully Reminds us of this. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, and here's our language, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Real repentance is not simply turning away from something. It's turning to the right thing. And that's what Israel is doing. They've heard the word of God, 
And they've stood there corporately confessing what they have done wrong. That's their turning from. Now they're turning to. We will obey the word of God. This is true repentance. You see similar events elsewhere in Scripture and in the reign of Hezekiah and Josiah. You see Israel, again, discovering the word of God and turning from their idols and turning to the living God again. Uh, You even see on occasion foolish promises made like this, like in the book of Acts where men swear to God that they will not eat until they kill the Apostle Paul. To my knowledge, they never killed him. I wonder if they never ate. It's not in the Bible. This particular promise in Nehemiah chapter 10 has something of a thorn attached to it, however. And the thorn that is attached to it in Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, excuse me, chapter 10, you can see quite clearly in verse 29, and I want you to give your attention to that, uh, when they say, they join their brothers, their nobles, and enter into, and notice how it is put, they enter into a curse and an oath. A curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do, the very next word is so important, does it say some, does it say most, all. They enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, dot, 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 and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Israel doesn't simply make a promise, if you will, as they speak, they stand there, figuratively, holding a knife to their own throats. We swear not simply a promise and an oath, but a curse. A curse that will come upon the one who does not keep this oath. So this is a covenant that comes from them, but it is also a covenant that in many ways that is on them. Literally, they are swearing to obey all of God's word, all of God's laws, and they swear it with a curse upon themselves if they do not keep it. Now, here here we're pressed down in that language of cutting. And you understand why this might be uh, both helpful and threatening. Because it was God himself who first cut a covenant. He did so in Genesis 15 when these animals are cut in half, kind of like the aisle in front of me. And as these animals and their bloodied bodies are laid on either side, it is not Abraham who passes through the torn, bloodied animals. It is rather God himself. And God in that manner swears by himself. Not only has he made covenant, but he will never break covenant. But if somehow he could, he would end up like these bloodied animals. But the point that flows into our text is that when a covenant is made, and we use this phrase sometimes, cutting a deal with somebody. It's based on this biblical language. Uh, there is a threat that the one who might break this covenant would be cut down in judgment. This covenant is driven, however, not simply by a matter of fear, but also of joy. And I don't want you to forget that from last week and the last text. Uh, Israel stood there corporately confessing their sin in sackcloth with the dust of the ground upon their heads. There is a measure of fear. But it would also be helpful to point out, and commentaries make this observation, uh, that, that arguably, as Israel makes this covenant in Nehemiah chapter 10, it is arguably a joyful moment. That it's not simply uh, fear, 
some sort of a slavish fear that is driving this, but in many ways, actually joy and thanksgiving. This is a covenant arguably fueled by a response to the grace of God. And what would Israel have to be thankful for? Everything. Everything. They're back. They're alive. They're no longer in exile. They're no longer away in captivity. They're back in the land. They have their temple again. They have their ministry again. They've just celebrated the Feast of Booze. Remember that? That lovely little camping trip. That uh, playful adventure with those little tents. They have just celebrated the Day of Atonement. In between the Feast of Booze and this day is the Day of Atonement. There's a great sense in which God, in spite of Israel's faithlessness, God himself has been faithful, and yet once again, Israel has been saved. Israel has been saved by God. But with that salvation comes the realization that they have been far from God, that they went into exile because they failed to obey the word of God. And so here they are now, rediscovering the word of God, standing, as it were, in Israel, alive and renewed, once again taking a similar vow that the people of God in the past have taken, promising to obey all the word of God. But I don't want you to lose this point. Uh, guilt is not in many ways, the best motivator. It is not guilt, arguably, that is motivating them to renew their vows. It is actually the grace of God. God who brought them back and has saved them once more. But Israel does have a profound sense of guilt. And they have stood there for hours, listening days upon days to the word of God. And when you think about it, what else should they do right now? Just take a couple steps back. They're back in the land. They've got the temple back. They've heard the law. What other response could they give or should they give other than to make a covenant and say to God, yes, we're going to do all that your word commands. And so they make this promise and then they sign it. And that takes us to our second point. What promise did they make? Now, this is uh, this is tricky stuff because they they write a big check here. They write a big check, and then they sort of uh, sign it in their own blood, if you will. There are five things in particular. It breaks down uh, pretty easily. We could have a whole sermon on each of them, but I, I won't do that to you. Uh, but they stand together, and that's the best reason why. Uh, there are five things on these subjects. Marriage, Sabbath, a temple tax, firewood. It's going to be fun. And then offerings of various kinds. Let's move through them one at a time. In verse 30, they make a promise. Never to intermarry again. And if you were here a few months ago, uh, you might remember that we tried to handle this subject with some delicacy and sensitivity. Because the issue of intermarriage for Israel is not an ethnic one, but a religious one. In an ancient Near Eastern uh, marriage, a couple uh, would often come to their wedding day with their household idols, these little figures. And when they got married, uh, one of the things that they would do at a wedding is exchange and share their idols. And then in their house, they would put them together uh, side by side. That's exactly what Israel did wrong. 
when they were away in the land, they started intermarrying. The problem was not ethnic, it was theological, it was religious. Those that uh, were settled in the land, they made the same mistake in their intermarriages. They had intermarried into the religions of the land, the idolatry of the land. And here they make what sounds like a pretty good promise that they will not do this again. Verse 30, they will not intermarry again, but they will rather make sure that they marry in the covenant. If you separate, helpfully, the ethnic matter altogether, what they're promising to do would be a wonderful promise to make. We promise to marry well. We promise to marry in the faith. We promise not to marry non-Christians. By implication, we promise not to date non-Christians. And this very matter is reiterated in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, that Christians ought not to marry non-Christians And therefore, Christians ought not to date non-Christians. So if you are, knock it off. It's really foolish. Okay? And God is very gracious. He will satisfy you much, much better. But that's the first promise that they make. And against the backdrop of how wrecked Israel was by their intermarriage, it is a wonderful promise for them to make. That's all the time I'm going to spend on it. It's very simple. It's very clear. The second one is a beautiful point as well. Regarding the Sabbath, in verse uh, 31, this matter of the Sabbath comes up. You can see how uh, the dominoes begin to fall when Israel intermarried and began to compromise their religion. One of the effects that that had was softening their relationship to God's Sabbath command. And so here they make a promise that, again, would translate very helpfully into our own lives, just as the last one did. Israel makes a promise that should foreigners come into their cities on the Sabbath day trying to sell their goods and wares, the promise is we won't buy them. Not that complicated. We will honor and respect the Sabbath, although it would be tempting to buy their wares because they're available. Surely we have a similar temptation before us. The wares of the world are sold on every day of the week now, aren't they? And the temptations, the offerings of the world to engage in worldly things are there every day of the week. I can remember when I was a little kid growing up in North Carolina, uh, we were not a church-growing family. The, the Sabbath or Lord's Day meant absolutely nothing to me, nothing at all. If anything, it was kind of a headache because some of the friends I wanted to play with were in church and I had to wait for them. Not very helpful. It was honest. But I can remember how many things were shut down How many things, businesses, were closed, the way that the world sort of stopped? And it it was attention-getting. Even for a non-Christian kid and teenager, it was attention-getting that this one day of the week stood out, and it, it separated people. It separated Christians from the world. It sort of marked out, uh, these are my non-church-going friends. And these are my church-going friends. These are my, I'm always there to party with you, friends, and, and these are the ones you at least have to wait till they got out of church. But there was a, an important lesson there that Israel was tempted uh, to forsake. Uh, God gave Israel the Sabbath not simply to display to the nations around them that there was something unique and holy about the people of God and the God of those people. He gave the Sabbath to them as a gift. I heard someone speak on it earlier this week and said it in a really helpful way. Uh, The entire point of the Sabbath command was to remind Israel that they were no longer slaves. 
And when they abandoned the Sabbath and they committed themselves to working seven days a week, that's the life of a slave. In the ancient Near East, slaves worked every day. God gave Israel a Sabbath so that one day a week they would know we are not slaves. When they were in Egypt, they could not obey that command. When they were in exile, they could not obey that command. Here they are now, free again, free to not live like slaves. And they basically make a promise, we're going to live like who we are. We are free. We're going to act free. We're going to live free. Now, we believe that the Sabbath translates into the New Testament, uh, Lord's Day and Day of the Lord, and that there is still for us a sense in which, although the day has changed, at least many of those principles, particularly that of rest, still abide to the people of God. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna nudge here and say, while we're at it, we shouldn't simply be thinking about, uh, our vows in a general sense, our marriages or marrying intentions, uh, but let me put it like this. Are you living like a slave? Are you surrendering the freedom that God has only given you, but built into the very framework of your week so that you might be free from worldly things? Free to glorify and enjoy Him? Free to rest? Free to engage His people? Free to engage His creation? Free to be free? Or are you making yourselves slaves? If you're abandoning the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, you are living like a slave. So stop. Well, knock it off. Put your books down. You can study on other days of the week. You can work on other days of the week. You can go to the mall and all, all the dumb stuff that people tend to get distracted by to try to do. You can do all of that worldly stuff on worldly days. But this is the Lord's day. You're free. It's not given as a burden. It's actually given as a gift. And so this is arguably one of the best promises that Israel makes. Uh, the third one in verse 32 is a temple tax. We won't spend much time on this, but on top of their tithing, they promise to set aside a portion of a shekel in order to uh, serve the temple and to continue, if you will, there, there were tithes and there were offerings. There are those things that God said, this you will give. And there were other things that people, God said, on top of that, this is what we're going to give. It was a posture of generosity, open heart, and open hand. And then they were to add to that the fourth thing. Uh, they promised to bring firewood for the house of God. And it took me a little while to figure out what this is for. And it's plain and simple, they were to cast lots, basically their own version of Rochambeau. And then they would bring wood for the burnt offerings there in the temple that not only would the offerings be able to uh, be offered day after day after day, but the, the, the light of the temple would remain bright. Verses 35 through 39, I want to unpack a little bit more slowly. At first glance, it may seem a little bit odd. But Israel makes uh, some very interesting promises here in verses 35 through 39 that says a lot about where their heart is, or at least where uh, the heart of God's people ought to be. And the key word there in this section is first. First of all kinds of things. Uh, first of first fruits of trees, first fruits of suns, cattle, first of dough, contributions, wine, and oil. If you unpack them more slowly, God was providing everything that Israel needed. He gave them not simply freedom from captivity 
and their temple and city back. He gave them daily life. He gave them daily food. He gave them daily provision. And he didn't simply give them just enough to keep them alive. He actually gave them good things, sweet things, good tasting things, things with which you might celebrate. And so the promise here that Israel makes is that when those trees abound with fruitfulness, God would get the first. When God granted to them uh, children, God would get the first. This is a very remarkable promise. Uh, the firstborn of sons were to be dedicated to the house of God. It's the way, it, well, take a step back. Uh, in this culture, this is a big deal for a couple reasons. One, most of life was agrarian. Hard work outside in the sun. If you remember the days from the farms, if you want to maintain a big farm, you need a lot of kids and you need some strong boys. And not only that, uh, in this world, inheritance ordinarily passed down the line of the sons. And so the promise here is a really big promise that the first, the firstborn of our sons would be dedicated to God himself. And not only that of our sons, but even the firstborn of our cattle. Again, in an agrarian world where cattle were so important, where they, where they did a big part of the work, not simply providing butter and milk, but even on the farm, uh, they promised to give God the very first of their cattle, which is another way of saying, God, with all that we have, with our family, with our life, with our money, with everything, we're going to put God first. That's the point. That's the point of the word. It's a promise to give God not simply our first, but in a certain sense, to give God our best as well. That God would receive Israel's first and Israel's best. And then they go on. First of our dough, first of our contributions, first of our wine, first of our oil. When you next open a bottle of wine, imagine pouring the first glass and giving it to God himself. That's what Israel's saying they're going to do. And then finally, it all comes together uh, with sort of a, a summary here in verse 39. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. In many ways, this last sentence sums up the whole thing. Israel's promising not to neglect the house of our God. Just before that, even as those tithes were brought, uh, there was a promise to, to, if you will, monitor the Levites who were in charge of them, making sure that nothing was lost, that nothing was stolen. Why all this attention to detail? It's because the house of God for Israel was the place where God met with his people. It wasn't the building that mattered so much. It was the person who dwelt in it. Israel came to the house of God to meet with God. Israel traveled as they just did in the Feast of Booth, that Feast of Weeks, on their pilgrimage to go to that place where God and man symbolically would dwell together, where communion between God and His people would take place, where the great promise of the covenant, I will be your God and you will be my people, was physically fulfilled as Israel had a temple, a place where they could go and meet God. In many ways, the last word, we will not neglect the house of our God, summarizes and overarches everything else that Israel had promised. It is truly the content of their covenant renewal 
But it leads us to one final point, the climax of covenant renewal. How did it go? How did they do? You ever gone to a wedding? It's always cool to see people take vows, but what really matters? It's whether or not they keep vows. Israel makes a big promise. They write a large check. They say to God, we have heard your word and we are all in, young and old. Everyone represented, the priests, the nobles, the governors, households, families, represented all who could understand collectively, uh, not only make, make this big promise, they say, in fine detail, we will obey all of your word, all of your rules, all of your statutes. Here, here's, the, here's the problem. The problem was not that they made the promise. The promise was whether or not they would keep the promise. Promises can be made, but promises can also be broken. On the one hand, this is a great day. On the one hand, this is kind of wedding-like. Something beautiful here just happened. Some fine words were said. But those fine words said mean nothing if those fine words are not maintained. What happens if you keep reading the book? How they do with those fine words? What happens if you keep reading other books in the Old Testament? What happens to those fine promises? And what if you keep reading the Bible as a whole? What do you learn not simply about the heart of Israel, the heart of man, has anyone ever done what Israel promised to do in Nehemiah 10? All the words that you have commanded, we will do. All of your statutes and your rules, all that you have said, we have now said that we will do. And the answer, of course, is no. Israel did not keep those rules and commands. Israel could not keep those rules and commands. So where does that leave us? If Israel writes a big check and signs it in their own blood, if a covenant has been cut that now comes not simply with words, but with a curse alongside the oath, what will happen to her? What will happen to those who break God's word, who break their own promises? Well, somebody's going to get cut. And judgment is going to come. Israel can stand there making a big promise, but that problem, the problem is that big promise will not be kept. And when Israel breaks those promises as they have in the past and do again, once more they will end up in exile and judgment. God has come again to his temple and God will leave again. And you know the story. In many ways, the Bible is, in a certain sense, like a broken record. In the sense that the people of God keep making these promises and yet they did not keep them. So what happens then when Israel repeatedly breaks its promises? What happens is, be with me here, God keeps his anyway. That's the good news. The sad reality is that the Bible is full of people making promises and not keeping them. But God... But God, but God always keeps his promises. He kept his promise to Abraham. He kept his promise to Isaac. 
He kept his promise to Jacob. He kept his promise to Joseph. He kept his promise to Israel. Over and over, as Israel fails to keep her promises, God nonetheless remains faithful to keep his. But what we find is that Israel needs something other than yet standing once more before God, swearing another promise that they will soon break. What they actually need is one who will do everything they promise to do. One that will keep all God's commands, all of his rules, and all of his statutes, and one who will be able to endure the cutting. And that's what we have, of course, in our Savior. Not man making a promise to God, but God fulfilling his promise to man, and the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came and did not simply stand there with empty words, saying things that he could not or would not do, but rather came into this world to obey every single word that God commanded, every single rule, every single statute, that not one jot, not one tittle, all of it would be fulfilled, and all of it was fulfilled. One who perfectly obeyed and thought word and deed, one who did not need to stand and give dramatic promises publicly displayed, because even with a quiet, steadfast, and simple way, he never veered from the path. He never had to repent. He never had to turn from sin and to righteousness because he always and only pointed his head into the wind and did everything that his father commanded and everything that the law demanded. Israel might have made this promise fueled by guilt. Israel might have made this promise fueled by grace. But as Jesus keeps and fulfills his promises, it's because he is the God-man who is full of grace who is not driven by guilt, but rather comes to bear our guilt. And if Israel swore a curse upon its head, how grateful we can be, beloved, that Jesus has endured that curse, that at the cross, he who fully kept all the law was cut and cut and cut until he was cut off from the land of the living. And because he has obeyed, all of God's law, and because he was cut off for our transgressions, what does that mean for you? Do you know what it means? It means that in the sight of God, beloved, even though you have broken promises many times, in the sight of God, you are viewed as though you kept everyone. That's a beautiful thought. How many promises have you broken? You really only have to be old enough to talk to be old enough to lie. Right? To begin saying things like, I didn't do it. I don't know. You know. You did it. And where does that leave us in the end? Not simply having our sins washed away, not simply being declared righteous, but also being on the receiving end of God's many promises and knowing that God, no matter what we do, in a certain sense, God is going to keep the promises that He has made to us. He will always be faithful. He will always be there, chief among His promises. He will never leave us nor forsake us, chief among his promises. All that he has promised to do for his people, he will continue to do to the very end of the age. Why is this so important to remember, beloved? Because we know it. We live in a world full of broken promises. 
And many of us wear the scars of other people's broken promises. And there's only one who can heal. And he's the one who has never lied to you a single time. Who has kept all of his promises and sealed it in his own blood. And that's what we need to remember. In a world full of broken promises, we have one who never will. Never lie to us. Never disappoint us. Never leave us. Never forsake us. But it should also be motivating. And I want to add uh, one last word here. Otherwise, I think I would fail you in some manner. It should motivate us to actually want to keep our word. Now, I read from Matthew 5 that discourages us in a certain manner of making empty promises and oaths. And if you've been in this church for a few years, you've probably heard me say now a couple of times that in, at least in my view, if I can say it that way, humbly, but based on what we're talking about, we really should make very few promises. And we really should be willing to die keeping the ones that we make. Covenant kids, in a certain sense, your entire life is you're living out the promises that were made over you at your baptism. And grown men and women, uh, one day somebody will stand over you and talk about your life. And in a certain sense, the question being asked will be, did they keep their promises? And the few occasions that we make them when we get married, when we join a church, we become officers perhaps, those vows mean the world. It's easy, you know, to die for someone. Let me say it like this. If we were outside and you saw a car coming near a kid, it wouldn't be hard for you, I don't think, to in a moment make a heroic gesture and lunge out in front of a car to save the life of a child. That, in a certain sense, would be easy to do. You know what's really hard? You know what's really hard? Waking up every single day and keeping your promises. That's really hard. It's a finer death. This morning I stood out in the rain asking God to give me more strength to keep my promises as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor. I even asked the help of a very strong-minded four-year-old. Help Daddy be strong. But when you read Ezra, excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 10, we should end not on a note thinking about how hard it is or the reality that we live in a world full of broken promises. We should actually walk away from this with our eyes fixed on Christ, the great promise giver and promise keeper, but with a hearty resolve, beloved, to keep the promises that you've made, to live well by those promises, to die a good death by those promises, to recognize that there is nothing in this world that really is worth breaking the promises that you have made. And so if you haven't made some of the promises that I've referred to already, when you do make them, mean them. Mean them. Live by them. Die by them. And if you have made meaningful promises, spend your life keeping the promises 
that you make. That's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. To be numbered among the people of God. People of the book. A people of truth. People who keep their word. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you that you were pleased to speak to us. That you were pleased to do all the things that you said that you would do. And how we thank you, O Lord, that Jesus came into the world because your people have broken many promises. We are unable to do what Israel promised. We cannot keep your word perfectly. Jesus had to do it for us. Nor could we stand under the weight of your knife of judgment should it fall down upon our heads. And so we thank you that in Jesus we have a covenant keeper. In Jesus we have one who has endured and was cut off for our sakes. But in this world, full of so many broken promises, would we ask that you would give us strength, that we would keep ours well, that we would remember vows that we have made uh, regarding our marriages, that we remember vows that we have made regarding raising up our covenant kids, that we remember the vows that we have made to our church, and that these would mean so much to us, Lord, that we would spend our lives, even be willing to die, keeping them. I pray, Lord, for our covenant kids who could easily become discouraged and cynical when they look around and see uh, parents, pastors, people who make promises and do not keep them. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to fix their eyes upon the great promise keeper. And I pray, Lord, for us in this room who already feel the weight of what has been said and know how many different ways, how many different forms we have not done all that we said that we would do. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you grant to us, even as we see embodied in the people of God in Nehemiah 9 and 10, a spirit of confession, a spirit of repentance. Help us, Lord, to turn from some things and to turn to you, the living God, with full endeavor, full resolve to glorify and enjoy you to the end of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.